1 Samuel chapter 4. Again, let's just remember the, the context of, of what's going on. This is, this is in the period of the judges. That that period is coming to an end, will soon come to an end. But it's that period in the history of the nation of Israel there, God's covenant people in the Old Testament, where there is no king and everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And it's in the context of that darkness, in the context of, of that spiritual desert, if you will, where everybody's just doing whatever they would want to do without any clear spiritual guidance. It's in there where God has just very graciously, providentially placed little pockets of faithful people, little pockets of faithful families. Elkanah and Hannah, one of his wives, are one of those little families. And we saw that in chapter 1 where they're going to worship. She's barren. She prays for the Lord to give her a child. God is gracious to do that. In chapter 2, she offers up this amazing prayer that really is an outline to the rest of the account that we read in Samuel. And then we're given this picture of these two worthless sons of the priest who are priests themselves, Hophni and Phinehas, who are the sons of Eli. How they're profaning the sacrifice of God. They're feeding their own physical appetites with the sacrifices intended for God. And they're feeding their sexual appetites with those women who are serving there at the temple. They are, they are this picture of worthlessness, it says. They're sons of Belial. They are rebuked by their father, but not very strongly. God will rebuke them. God will discipline them. He announces that he's going to reject their household through this unnamed prophet. And then in chapter 3, last week, we saw this picture of the Lord calling out little Samuel, the word of the Lord coming once again into the realm there, if you will, of the country. And it ends there in chapter 3 that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then the next sentence, and I have no earthly idea why this sentence is not the last sentence in chapter 3. Understand, of course, that in the originals there were no paragraph, no verse numbers, none of these things. It really doesn't seem that this sentence fits within the context of what's coming next in chapter 4. Nonetheless, it says there in verse 1 of chapter 4, And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. 
For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled. For the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the cry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray before we look at this. Lord, we do lift up this word. Thank you for it. Thank you for recording these old stories for us that in many ways, Lord... We, we might even wonder, what in the world has this got to do with me? Lord, you tell us in 1 Corinthians that these words were written for our instruction. Lord, these are given to us so that we can see them. And Lord, through the work of your Spirit, turn our eyes to Jesus and see him in all of his glory. See the failures of these people. See the faithfulness of these people. Lord, we just pray that you would teach us today through this passage. Show us more about you, Lord, about who you are. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is your favorite good luck charm? Your favorite talisman is uh, the term that would be used there. I, I, I was doing a little studying this week about this, the whole history of good luck charms. It's, it's really somewhat bizarre. 
Um, and, and you've probably heard some of us who follow athletics, you know, we've heard about the pregame rituals and the superstitions of some of our favorite athletes and the things that they do or say or wear or eat before every game. Um, anyway, as I was reading about talismans, I, I found actually there were some psychologists who had done a study and they defined this talisman concept like this. The talisman is where our beliefs can be housed so that we don't just talk about them, but we have physical evidence of those powers and those beliefs. What we do is we take these beliefs, they wrote, and we put all the components of this belief system into an object. And our talismans give us power and protection and remind us of what we value. It's a power that comes from deep within every one of us. Is that really the case? Now, if in fact, or just by chance, your favorite good luck charm is a rabbit's foot, let me just caution you a little bit about that, because I did some in-depth research on that this week, too, and was quite surprised by what I found, okay? And I'm reading this, so I'm not picking on anyone or anyone with any particular hair color. But it turns out that these talismans are based on really bad luck or bad things or things that are considered evil. And we take what is evil and it's like the venom of a snake. You turn it into an antidote for the bite itself. Okay, so you take these things that are considered evil or bad and you turn them kind of into this object that will be used for a good luck charm. So if you really want a rabbit's foot that works, okay then what you need is a person who has red hair because redheads are considered bad luck. I'm reading this, okay? Again, this is not me. I used to date a redhead back in the day. And she was bad luck, by the way. (laughs) Just saying. Rachel, if you by chance are listening to this, I'm sorry. Um, So you take this redhead, and it would be good if she's cross-eyed because cross-eyed is bad luck, too. And that cross-eyed redhead, if she really wants to get a good, effective rabbit's foot, needs to go into a cemetery at midnight under a full moon on Friday the 13th. And if this cross-eyed redhead goes into the cemetery at midnight on Friday the 13th under a full moon, then she finds a rabbit, then she needs to get a rabbit, and she needs to not go to the front of the rabbit, but to the back side, because the back side is considered more evil than the front side. And she needs to go to the left side, because the left side is considered more evil than the right side. So our redhead cross-eyed needs to go into the cemetery at midnight on Friday the 13th under a full moon and get the back left foot of a rabbit. And that will be your good luck charm. Okay? It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? All right? Now, one of the definitions, what I was reading about how you do this is, if by surviving the experience of capturing this charm, then the charm itself will bring good luck. That's a key word, surviving the experience of capturing that charm. That's relevant to our passage. Because it turns out that they weren't really able to survive capturing what they thought would be their good luck charm. Let's consider the ark, okay? No, not Indiana Jones in that ark, okay? I'll get to that in just a minute. By the way, by this, for sermon prep, I watched Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark last night, okay? So I'm on top of the game as far as that goes. You'll hear about that in just a minute. The Ark of the Covenant. Turn to Exodus chapter 25. 
I want to take just a second to talk about this because from Exodus 25 on through the end of the Old Testament, the Ark, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Testimony of the Lord of Hosts, however the terminology is used, from Exodus 25 on to the end of the Old Testament, the Ark is going to be mentioned in my Bible 167 times. 20% of those, all right? 32 times it's mentioned in the next four chapters of 1 Samuel. The ark is front and center over these next little sections, these next four sections of, of Samuel. That's why it's called the ark narrative. And so as we consider the ark, let's listen again and be reminded again of, again of God's instructions about this, this object, this gold-covered box, which is what it is. All right? So starting in Exodus chapter 25, I'm going to start reading in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, or acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. So in, in inches, it's like 45 inches by 27 by 27, if, if, if my calculations are right. So, you know, you kind of get this picture of this box that's, you know, not quite four feet long, foot and a half wide, foot and a half tall. All right. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put it on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one of the cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. On the piece on, of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on the two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall be the faces of the cherubim. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from there, excuse me, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So there... In the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the tabernacle would be this one piece of furniture. And so the terminology that's used throughout Samuel's chapters here and out throughout the rest of the Old Testament tell us much about what this box, this covenant box, if you will, represents. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And so in there is this sign of the covenant, the Ten Commandments that God would give to Moses there on the mountaintop. The writer of Hebrews tells us that there's two other things in there. There's a gold urn with some manna in it, and there's the budding staff of Aaron, the staff that Aaron had that budded. Those are inside that ark, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So there's this picture of God's faithfulness and his promise and his word inside of this ark. It's also called, in our text, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. 
So there is this visible reminder that the God of heaven's armies, the general of all the hosts of heaven, is represented in this. This is the reminder. This is the picture, if you will. This is the place where the general of heaven's armies meets with his people. And this is the place where he speaks with his people. They're from the mercy seat. In the Hebrew language, the mercy seat actually means to cover or to atone or to propitiate is one of the words we use. And so it's there that God would meet with his people. It's there that the high priest would come and atone for the sins of the people one time a year. And it's there that God would speak, he says in the book of Exodus, to his people. And there were times in the Old Testament where the ark was taken out and went before the people, right? So it tells us in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy that as the Lord was leading his people, it says, excuse me, Numbers, in Numbers chapter 10, it says, So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them there three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. So there were times when God commanded that the ark go before his people. In Joshua chapter 3, remember in that account, Joshua told the people, you shall take the ark of the Lord, the priests were to carry it. They were to lead the people to the edge of the Jordan River. It says in Joshua 3 that when the priests carrying the ark, when their feet touched the river, it dried up. And they led the people across the dry riverbed, just like they would led them across the Red Sea. Later on in the book of Joshua, it tells us that the ark, not leading this time, but following behind, was a part of the procession that went around the city of Jericho. So there are places and times where God had commanded that his ark come and be there amongst his people. Most of the time, though, what was the normal was that the people came there. And then only the representative of God went into the presence of the ark. It was the most sacred thing that there was physically. For the people of God under the old covenant. So there's the picture that we have. Now here's what this whole section, this arc narrative tells us. As we think about it. And as we'll look at it over the next couple of weeks. It's what Hannah said in her prayer. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none like him. And this God that we see portrayed here. He will not allow himself to be domesticated. Or used for anyone's purposes other than his own. This God that we see here will not be our good luck charm. In the next chapter, he will not be a war trophy. In the next chapter, he will not be used for our spiritual show and tell. This God will not in any way be our novelty. But he will, he will hear his people humbly repent. And he will come to their rescue. He is gracious and good in his holiness and and righteousness. And so that's the picture that we have here before us. Notice as we begin this little narrative account here in chapter 4, that our God will not be domesticated or used by us. That's kind of what we see here in the first 11 verses. There's this new reality that's present here in the lives of these people. What is that new reality? That the word of the Lord is here again. It's been gone for a long time. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, it tells us earlier. But now the word of the Lord is here again. And Samuel is mentioned, and then he will disappear. He's mentioned in verse 1, and we'll not hear from him again until later on in chapter 7. So there's a new reality. The word of the Lord is here. There's an old enemy. 
an old enemy that's been around for a long time. The Philistines. The Philistines are first mentioned back in the book of Genesis in chapter 10. They're descendants of Noah through his son Ham. And the Philistines are a constant thorn in the side of God's people. Constantly and consistently. Now the Philistines are no weak foe. Archaeologists tell us, biblical historians tell us that that they were kind of encamped, if you will. They'd kind of come and set up shop, if you will, or homes in the lowland part of this land. They were close to the coast, and they were under the influence of the Greeks. In many ways, it was the Philistines who first were able to mine and develop iron in what we know as the Holy Land. And they used it to their advantage. Remember how... Goliath would be clothed later on. Well, there's a whole army of them clothed that way. They're covered with military equipment, helmets, iron helmets, shields, chainmail armor, swords and spears. They are formidable opponents. But there's also a, a promise, okay? You've got this old enemy. You've got this new reality. But you have God's promise. If you want to turn back to the book of Leviticus, just listen to this promise. Leviticus chapter 26 in verse 3, the Lord said, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then down in verse 6 it says, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none of you shall be afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. That is God's certain promise. But remember last week with the gospel, there's two sides of the gospel. There's a side that's the good news, then there's a side that's the bad news. Well, there's two sides to this promise. And later on in the book of Leviticus chapter 26, down in verse 14, it says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all of my commandments but break my covenant, then God says, I will do this. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down by your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. So there's an old enemy. But there is a certain promise of God. A promise of deliverance and victory or a promise of defeat. And what we have here is an initial defeat. And it's, it's a bad defeat. It says that the Philistines lined up. It, the picture there is of an orderly line of, of soldiers against Israel. And the battle spread, and Israel was defeated, and 4,000 of those men were killed there in the battle. So things are not going well with this initial skirmish, if you will, this initial battle. And so then it says that the, the elders, so here, we have this initial defeat, and then we have a good question. It's a good question. It's, a, it's, it's the right question. And it's asked by the right people. By that I mean the elders of the people. The men who are called to lead and shepherd and care for and direct are the ones who are assessing what's going on and recognize we have a problem. Why did we get defeated? And not just why did we get defeated. They see it for what it is. Why did God defeat us? 
So the why is a good question. It's a relevant question. They ask the right question. They just don't ask the right person. There's no mention of a prayer. There's no mention of seeking God's face. There's no mention of coming before the Lord and and inquiring of Him what had gone on. They just make an assumption. And I kind of picture it this way. They're standing around going, what happened? And then one of them goes, oh man, we forgot the ark. How could we forget that? And so they sinned. For the ark. And they have this false assumption. There's this assumption here that if we have this ark, we can't be defeated. We need our holy rabbit's foot. So picture Indiana Jones again. That's the storyline of the whole movie, right? At the beginning of the movie, there's this scene where Indiana Jones is taken out of the classroom where he's lecturing and brought into this lecture hall to meet with this representative from the government, a military representative. Uh, evidently, one of his deans or superiors is there, too. So they have this meeting on the stage there. That's, that's the scene in the movie. And this one, in, in, this one general, if you will, is asking all of these questions. And Indiana Jones pulls out an old Bible, this big, thick, leather-bound Bible, and opens it up to this picture. And the picture that's in the movie is this picture of the Israelite priest holding up the ark and coming out of these ark looks like laser beams. And it's penetrating into every one of these soldiers who are clearly dying in agony. Those boys are having a rough day. But there's this picture of this lightning, if you will, coming out of the ark in this Bible that Indiana Jones is holding. And the major goes, good God. And one of them replies, yes, that's exactly what the Hebrews thought. And then the colonel says, what is that coming out? Indiana Jones says, well, it's lightning or fire, the power of God or something, if you believe in that kind of thing. And then the major says, well, I'm beginning to understand Hitler's interest in this. And the dean there, Brody is his name in the movie, says, oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army that carries the ark before it is invincible. That's, that's, that's what the movie said. It must be true. That's what they believed. That's what the Israelites thought. If we'd had the box, things would have been different. And so they get it. They, they bring it. And, and the ark makes its grand entrance. And there's three things that just are kind of striking to me about it says, so they, they sent for the ark of the Lord of hosts. There it is. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts. It's a profoundly powerful title, name for this, for the ark there. Not only the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. So the writer here is giving us this picture of the holiness and the majesty and the power and the might of God. And it's brought by these two losers, Hophni and Phineas. These are the men bringing this ark onto the battlefield. So you have this picture of the holiness and majesty of God being carried onto the battlefield, really, by two dead men walking. They just don't know it yet. But it's these two losers. And listen, these two guys are a picture of the spiritual health of the nation. We've seen that. Those who are carrying the ark are a picture of the spiritual health. Health or lack of it 
in the country, in the nation. So you have these two men carrying the ark. You have this amazingly loud, enthusiastic, and empty response of the Israelites. Man, they're having church. And they're having loud church. But there's nothing to it. It says that when they brought it in, the earth resounded with a mighty shout. I mean, there's enthusiasm. There's a lot of fanfare. But there's zero fear. Zero fear. But look at the Philistines. Here we have appropriate, albeit misguided, fear. Okay, so they're looking at this from a polytheistic perspective. Okay, they've got all their little gods. We'll meet one of them in the next chapter. They've got all their gods. They've got all their idols. They've got all these things. But these men recognize something. They recognize what Israel had forgotten. And what we often forget. That even though they don't understand him at all, these gods or this God of the Israelites, he's the real deal. Because they recount all these things that he has done. We remember what he did. We remember what we were told about what he did in Egypt. You know what's amazing about this is this is long before the ark was ever built. But the reputation of God had preceded him. And the word of what he had done had preceded him. And they are rightfully afraid, rightfully afraid, but not Israel, and often not us. J.T. mentioned a book a minute ago as he was introducing how sweet and awful is this place. He was mentioning this book by Drew Dyke, Yawning at Tigers. Subtitle is, You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying. And in his book, he tells the account there at the beginning of the book about a little town called Zanesville, Ohio. i I googled it this week and spent a little time reading the news accounts of what happened here in Zanesville, Ohio on October the 10th in 2011. It was a fall day, typical fall day, kind of cold, rainy. People were going to work. Kids are going to school. Everything's kind of normal. There's a gentleman who lived in that town named Terry Thompson. Terry had a private exotic zoo, which was by law allowed at that time in Ohio. So while everybody's going to school and everybody's going about their day, Terry Thompson, who is deep in debt, he's separated and estranged from his wife. He has spent time in federal prison because of a firearms violation and has another charge against him, so he's under house arrest. Before he puts a gun to his head and kills himself, he opens all of the cages in his exotic zoo and lets all the animals go there in Zanesville, Ohio. It didn't turn out well for the animals. But what's roaming the streets and the fields, running under the spot, under the, the street lights, are 18 Bengal tigers, 17 lions, six black bears, three cougars, two grizzlies, two wolves, and a baboon. They said another monkey escaped as well, but the cats ate it. So these animals are running the streets. People are calling in to 911 reporting seeing a lion under a street light or a wolf in the backyard. Exotic animal, caution, exotic animals. One of the news reports I pulled up had this picture of this massive road sign saying, caution, exotic animals, remain in your vehicle. So there in Zanesville, Ohio on this day, these animals are running wild. And here's what Drew Dyke says in his book about this. 
He says two very different worlds collided there in Zanesville. The wild and the civilized, the exotic and the ordinary. And here's his, here's his application of that. If we truly believe this kind of God was in our midst, I wonder if we would respond more like the people of Zanesville. Lock our doors and call the police. But for the most part, we neither tremble in fear nor thrill with excitement at the prospect of encountering this wild deity. Instead, our church experiences are largely predictable and sedate. Our spiritual lives are devoid of passion. Yes, we believe, but our knowledge of God is dry and cerebral. We give mere mental assent to truths that should leave us shaking. We mumble perfunctory prayers. We ask God to keep us safe, not realizing that it is from Him that we need to be protected. And even when we see evidence of God in our midst, when we glimpse of His holiness, we're more likely to yawn than yell. Somehow we've succeeded in making the strange ordinary. We walk by a tiger without ever looking twice. He then says, yes, God is dangerous. He is not a house cat. He is a lion. And you're free to deny his existence or pretend that he's harmless. And go ahead and pet him if you like. Just do not expect to draw your arm back. This holy, righteous God will not be domesticated. He will not be at our beck and call. Every time something seems to go wrong or there's a failure. And we read this account here, this first portion of it, and the question is, has God lost? Has he been diminished in any way? Has his plans or purposes somehow been thwarted by this defeat? Because as we read on in the rest of the text, these Philistines just manned up and fought. And did they ever? But it didn't matter. There could have been five of them, I believe. And it would have been the same outcome. There was a very great slaughter, it says, for 30,000 of the foot soldiers of Israel fell. The ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Has God lost the battle? Has his purpose been thwarted? In some way, has God's glory been diminished? No. What we understand from our perspective, and they should have understood even from theirs, is that in this defeat, God's purposes are being furthered. God is being faithful to His Word, right? In their defeat. God is being faithful to His own glory in the way that He has disciplined them. In His defeat, not only is His Word being fulfilled, but His purposes are being fulfilled. What has just happened, and will continue to happen in just a minute in the rest of the text, is that God is cleaning the table for Samuel. So that Samuel can come in and be the priest that he should be after these others are removed. And in this defeat, God's people and we will see God's enemies are learning a powerful lesson about his power and glory. That we cannot demand from him or manipulate him. So we, we, we don't have an ark to pull out. But listen, church. We put our Ten Commandments on the wall. Or we'll pull out our baptism certificate. Or we'll remind somebody where we're a member of the church. Or we'll point to that big giant Bible sitting on our coffee table. 
And we expect God to be impressed. That in some way he's pressed into service because of something that may have happened in the past. And that's not God's covenant is a beautiful picture of his faithfulness to his people. But it is a call for them to be faithful and obedient to him. And we'll see this applying in just a minute through our understanding of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he does for us. But we just need to remember Hannah's prayer. God is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. Spurgeon got it right. Of course Spurgeon got it right. (laughs) Here's what he said. Instead of attempting to get right with God, these Israelites set about devising superstitious means of securing the victory over their foes. And in this respect, most of us have imitated them. We think of a thousand inventions, but we neglect the one thing that is needful. They forgot the main matter, which is to enthrone God in the life and to seek Him and to do His will by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there was what there was here for the Israelites was the appearance of religion without the meat of it, without the, the core of obedience. How does the rest of the passage go? It shows us that God cannot be captured and his glory cannot be robbed. Eli is waiting at the gate and this man of Benjamin, by the way, some Jewish historians, some apocryphal writings will point back or point forward, if you will, to chapter 10 in this this Benjaminite that will be introduced to us then named Saul. And they make a connection between these two, but there's no biblical evidence of that. But a man of Benjamin comes from the battle. And this guy runs, it's about 20 miles from Shiloh to where the battle has taken place. So he runs a full, almost a full marathon, covered with dust, with his clothes torn. And he runs into the city, bringing the bad news of what is going on. And when he arrived, it said that Eli there in verse 13 is sitting by the seat, by the road, watching. For his heart is trembling for the ark of God. So the man comes into the city and he shares the news and there's an uproar. There's a cry coming from throughout the city. And Eli hears this and says, what is it? What's going on? And it gives us his age. It tells us what's going on. His eyes were set so that he could not see. So here's Eli responding to this marathon messenger. And he comes bringing this progression of bad news. Notice the progression. Israel has fled. There has been, secondly, he says, a great defeat. Basically, we got stomped. Thirdly, he says, your sons are dead. They've been killed. And then fourthly, using this literary build-up that's used there in the Hebrew, the author, just in a beautiful way, gives us this picture of the worst of the news that's to come. And the ark of God has been captured. So it tells us that here's this old 98-year-old man who's, who's very heavy, sitting on a stool, and he's blind, but it says he's watching. And I, I think it's pretty easy to understand that, right? That, I mean, those who lose a sense, whether it's usually in their sight like this, their other senses are so keen, they seem to know what's going on around them in this amazing way. Well, it says he's watching. I believe he's watching with his heart. And it says that he's trembling for the ark of God. Why would that be the case? While it doesn't say so here, I think, I think you can read into this. I don't think it's going to be taking too much liberty with the text to realize that Eli understood sending that ark into battle was foolish. 
It should have been his responsibility to oversee it, and he sent it. And not only did he send it, but he sent it with his two sons, whom he knew were worthless. So he sent the ark inadvisedly in by men who had no business being with it. And so contrary to the purpose of God that Eli would understand, that ark was sent to a place where it shouldn't be and used like in a way that it shouldn't have been used. And so we're not surprised that he's trembling. And then we have this, his response is his demise. As soon as the ark is mentioned, isn't that interesting? We'll see that with Eli and we'll see it with his daughter-in-law in just a minute. It's not the news of his sons that seem to bring him down. It's not the news of the defeat of the army that brings him down. It's the news of the ark that brings him down. The ark which has caused his heart to tremble now is the reason for his death. And he falls all this, off this stool, and it says that because of his weight, he broke his neck and he died, and a 40-year career just came crashing to an end. It just ended. And in a way, the question that his daughter-in-law is going to ask, where has the glory gone? That's literally what Ichabod means. That question, in a way, is answered by the way the Hebrew language is given for us here, because there's a word play going on. And the answer in a short version is, where's the glory? Well, it's been stolen by Eli and his sons. And, and if you really want to know where the glory is, in a literal sense, it's around his waist. Why is it the writer wants us to understand that Eli was a big, heavy man? Because the word for heavy is kabed. And the word that's translated for glory is kabod. K-A-B-O-D. In, in, in the English letters. And so there's a word play here between the weight that's around Eli's belly and the glory or the weight of God that has been taken. So where's the glory? Well, it's on Eli's gut. And so here's this picture, if you will, of God, not literally, not really, but this picture of this God being taken away as if he were light, and this priest, because he's heavy, falling to his death. It's just an, an amazing literary work here. And so what we have here is, is the glory of God has been taken, and, in, and if it can be taken in a, in a sense of understanding the text here, it's been taken by his disobedient priest. And by those who should have been lifting the Lord up. And so there's this picture of his sons abusing the sacrifices and sleeping with the women. And Eli letting them get away with it. And the glory of God being belted around his waist, if you will, by the way they've made themselves fat on the sacrifices of God. In the end, it brings him down to his death. Make no mistake, God will be taken seriously one way or the other. One way or the other. It's an ironic death. And then we have this amazing last account here of his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, who is pregnant. And she gets the news from the battlefield, but her news is in reverse order. Okay? So if, if the response of Eli and his waistline is a picture of the spiritual emptiness, if you will, of what's going on in Israel. I think there's another picture here in this daughter-in-law. All right? There's, a, there's this picture here. So she gets the news, and the first thing that she hears is that the ark has been captured. 
Then she hears about her father-in-law and her husband. Then she hears that she's a widow. And that news pushes her into labor. And that labor will take her life. But before she dies, she names the son that is born. And in an attempt to comfort her, okay, remember, what was the problem with Hannah's barrenness? There's no son. There's no one to take care of her. There's nothing that's going to continue the line. She's going to be destitute. In an effort to comfort this daughter-in-law and to kind of assuage her pain and, and, and maybe try to help her pull through, they said, oh, you have, been, you have been given a son. Do not be afraid. And she didn't even hear it. She just names the child Ichabod. Her heart is broken. Eli's heart trembled. Her heart is broken. And I think it's broken for the right reason. I think it's broken for the right reason. Because what she sees here is that something tragic has happened in her nation. Something tragic has happened. And what, what brings her to the end is not the news of her husband or her father-in-law. And when she gets this news, it's an amazing response. She gives birth and she says, the glory. Where is the glory? That's literally what Ichabod means. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. There's no grief over her husband. There's no grief over her father-in-law. There's grief over the ark being taken, the ark being captured, and the glory of God being taken in her mind's eye. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured, she says. One writer this week, as I was studying, said this. It must be that this lady somehow, in a way not disclosed by the Holy Scripture, lived in the presence of God. That when her husband let her down, when she was aware of the discrepancy between his public profession and the private reality, she somehow retreated back into the covenant promises of God. And there's nothing there that clearly indicates that for us, but I don't think that summary is too far off base because she is brokenhearted over the lack of glory, over the lack, over the reality that the ark has been taken. And in some way, she remembered God's promise. If you'll be faithful to me, I'll make my dwelling place with you, he said. I, my soul shall not abhor you. I'll walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. And she remembered that God had said earlier in Leviticus, I will discipline you for your sins and I will break the pride of your power. And she sees this power being broken. She sees the life of her husband who has been so disrespectful of God and probably disrespectful of her as well, if I could just make a connection there. And she sees him brought down and that's not what breaks her heart. Ralph Davis is a professor of Old Testament. And here's what he said. She taught more theology in her death than probably her husband did in his entire life. And this lady whose name we do not know lived a faithfully hidden life and was probably laid to rest in some unvisited tomb. Her heart was broken over the spiritual reality of what was going on. And it's a picture that I think of in one of those little pockets of faithfulness. The word she had was Ichabod. Our word is Emmanuel. Her reality is where was the glory. Our reality comes from Matthew chapter 1. In that word to Joseph, She shall bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And looking back in Isaiah, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The daughter-in-law asked, where is God? And what's our answer from a New Testament perspective? God is with us. His name is Emmanuel. She asked, where is the glory? We know where the glory is. For the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten Father, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, in John 1.14. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1 that He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. We don't wonder where the glory of God is. It's in Jesus. And we don't have to wonder what it looks like. Because we see it in Jesus. We see it in His character. We see it in His ministry. We see it in His perfection. We see it in His death. We see it in His resurrection. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, they crucified the Lord of glory. It was glory hanging on that cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul takes us back to creation and points us to the recreation that comes in the heart of those who see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because if God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Where's the glory? It's in Jesus. And where does God meet with us now? What's our mercy seat? Where is our sin atoned for? The Israelites felt desperate because the one place that they, in their understanding, could see their God and meet their God and have their tone to sin now belonged to the Philistines. Church, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's our new covenant promise. It's not Ichabod, it's Emmanuel. And in Hebrews chapter 4... When it says that he is our faithful high priest. And he is our mercy seat where the blood is applied. And he is the place where God, he is the one in through whom God speaks to us. And his wrath is averted by Christ. Jesus is your only hope. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. This God that we see pictured here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Listen, it's not a different God from the New Testament. He's not a God of wrath over there and a God of love over here. But that wrath and that holiness has been poured out on His only begotten Son, the perfect Lamb of God. And those who would place their faith and trust in Him don't have to fear that wrath. Jesus took it on Himself. He who had no sin became sin for us. And in Him we received the righteousness of God. Trust Christ today. Don't be stubborn and stiff-necked. Don't think for one second your presence in this building makes any difference to God unless your heart belongs to Him. He will not be impressed by our Ten Commandments on the wall or our tail end in this pew unless our heart belongs to Him. He will not be domesticated. He will not be used. And so church, there's this picture. We'll see it later on. Shiloh, this place of worship, this sacred place for the Israelites. Many commentators and scholars tell us that when the Philistines got finished with the Israelites on the battlefield, they marched and destroyed Shiloh. Shiloh was no more. 
Because Shiloh was shallow. It was shallow. There was a form of religion there, but there was no substance, no obedience. And so I read that passage earlier from Psalm 78. Listen to it again. Verse 58 says, They provoked him to anger at their high places and moved him to jealousy with their idols. And when God heard he was full of wrath, he utterly rejected Israel. And listen to what it says in verse 60. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of his foe. God allowed his power if you will, to be taken captive, and His glory, if you will, to be taken by the Philistines so that we, His people, would see His steadfast commitment to that glory and that power and to His purposes. That even in judgment, God's grace is being extended. Jeremiah saw this. Jeremiah says in chapter 7, verse 12, Go now to my place that was at Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it. Because of the evil of my people. Yes, God is a God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed, church. We need to keep this picture in our mind. Jesus sees it now. The writer of Revelation tells us His eyes are flames of fire, right? Remember that? He's walking among His seven churches. So the shallowness of Shiloh is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. And church, we must pray for God to examine our hearts. By Him our actions are weighed. He's a God of knowledge and He understands and sees fully well what's going on in each of our hearts. So the word to us individually, don't play around with this. There's a word to us corporately. Seek the Lord with all of our hearts. Don't let anything turn our face aside from that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will take this word today and impress it upon each of our hearts. That you'd open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we could see your glory in this Old Testament narrative. That you'd open the eyes of our hearts that we could see your glory in Jesus as he's lifted up on that cross. And as he comes out of that empty tomb. And as he ascends up into glory there at the ascension. And we could see your glory as that Son of Man returns with his eyes blazing and the sword coming from his mouth as we see his return in Revelation. Father, forgive us for trying to domesticate and soften you. Forgive us for trying to make you more palatable to the culture around us. God, I pray that we would see you for who you are. Reverence you, fear you, and love you. And Lord, by your spirit, we pray that you'll do that work in us. Continue to grow us up in Christ, I pray in his name. Amen.